0: I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're continuing to make our way through the Lord's Prayer. This is our third part. We spent, um, well, it's been a month now, four weeks ago, looking at uh, just prayer in general and some of the instruction we have in the larger catechism on that. (laughs) And I mentioned last time, that my goal was to take each phrase of the Lord's Prayer, each petition, and work our way through it. So tonight, we're just looking at the preface of the Lord's Prayer. So we'll look at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and then I'm going to also have you turn over to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. So just be ready for that, but we'll start here with Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help and understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this opportunity to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that you would encourage us in our prayer life, that you would teach us to pray, and that you would enable us to uh, use your word, to know your word in such a way that it would be an encouragement to us in our prayers. It would guide us as we pray for ourselves, the needs that we have, but also the needs of others. Uh, Lord, help us to not neglect this privilege we have Uh, to bring our petitions before you. We know that you are a good and loving Father who gives good gifts to your children. And this is one of those good gifts. Help us to uh, enjoy the privilege of praying to you, both individually and corporately. Even now as we pray as a corporate body and, and knit our hearts together in unity in this prayer. And help us to be attentive to your spirit as we learn from you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, and we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And now turn over to Matthew chapter six, and we'll look at verses seven through thirteen. Matthew chapter six verses seven through thirteen, and just as I mentioned previously, this may be, uh, you know, obviously the prayers are elaborated in Matthew. Some of the phrases are missing in in Luke, um, and they're in different contexts. One is Jesus is preaching on the Sermon of the Mount, in Ma- in in Luke eleven, um, he's he's well past that time in his ministry, um, and so it. It could be that this is another opportunity where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, um, and he's using similar um, language. Uh, so we should see both of these as complementing one another and it helping us in our own prayers. So, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And then if you look down at the bottom, uh, if you have your ESV Bible, you see the footnote four there adds a a conclusion there. Uh, Some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's probably the fuller reading of the Lord's Prayer that you've heard in the past. But this afternoon, all I want to focus on is the preface. So we'll begin by looking at the larger catechism, question 189, on what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? It answers it this way. The preface of the Lord's Prayer contained in these words, our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and our interest therein with reverence and all other childlike dispositions, heavenly affections, and do apprehensions of his sovereign power, majesty, and gracious condescension, as also to pray with and for others. So, what I want to do is, is take some time, as we've done the last few times, to break this question down to look at the scripture references. Um, and you can certainly do that on your own, but I'll just be referring to them as I, um, as I teach through this catechism question the first thing we see is that we are taught to pray uh, with a or about regarding, or at least with an understanding of God's fatherly goodness and having a childlike reverence. So it says, teaches, teaches us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and our interest therein. So in Luke, Maybe you notice the, the prayer opened with just father, that's the preface, is, is father, and in, in Matthew, the preface is our father in heaven. Um, so the first thing we should recognize when we pray to God is recognizing him as a good father. A good father is able to show compassion to his children, Psalm 103, verse 13. This is not always our experience, though, is it? on earth, we have various levels of experiences with our fathers. Um, some of us have fathers who were absent physically, or even if they were in the home, they were absent emotionally. Um, all of us can, can probably speak to various challenges we've had growing up and, and it, just various degrees of, of compassion from our earthly fathers, probably in different seasons of our lives as well. Um, but our Father in heaven is superior to even our best examples. Right, we should recognize the compassion of our Father every time we come before Him. He is ready to hear us. He's ready to receive our prayers and our praise. Later on in the chapter um, in Luke, uh, you'll, you get this, the kind of Father that Jesus has in mind. Because he, Jesus clarifies in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. It's not, he's not technically just clarifying back, pointing back to, um, uh, to his reference to God as Father, but he does explain what a good father does. He explains that in, in verse 11. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So as we come to God and we recognize him as the Father, we, we know he's a good Father. And if we ask him for good things according to his will, we can be confident that he'll give it joyfully and gladly. So we pray to a heavenly father who gives us good gifts that are superior to any gifts our earthly father might have given us. That's because even the best earthly father, as he says here, remains evil. Your best father on earth is evil. They have been affected by the fall and are incapable of being the kind of father that even they desire to be. And if you're a father, you know that to be true of yourself. All right, and so, even when fathers do something good, their intentions are oftentimes mixed with impurities, but our Heavenly Father is perfect. Our Heavenly Father knows precisely what we need, and the greatest gift our Heavenly Father provides is the Holy Spirit. All right? He sends to us the Spirit, and as we Considered this morning, it is the Holy Spirit who seals us for eternity. It's the gift of the Spirit who who empowers us to be witnesses for Him and enables us to persevere. These are good, encouraging gifts that we should rejoice in receiving and we should remind ourselves of their goodness every time we come before our Father in prayer. So because we've received the Spirit, we can pray to God with the confidence of a child. We're not slaves who come before God with trembling fear as if we have to convince him to listen. Right? He did not give us spirit of slavery. Now, when we use the word servant in, in, in Scripture, it oftentimes is, is really the same thing. It's bondservant. Right? It's, it's a slave. And we are willing servants of God. We have been brought into that. But, but as a servant of God, we don't have a spirit of slavery as if we're begging our master for mercy. Our father's already ready to give us mercy, to give us grace. He has that disposition towards us as a good and loving father to his children. So we don't come trembling. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons. As we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, And so because we have the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. we don't cower before the throne of grace, but we come with reverence and all other childlike dispositions as the answer continues. So notice the the balance there. First of all, we, we draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and interest therein, but we also come with reverence. We come confidently, but we come humbly. We come boldly, but we come with that proper reverence, a healthy fear of his might and his power. We are deeply aware of his holiness and our unworthiness. We know that God's anger is warranted, but we ask him to forget our iniquity. As Isaiah 64 verse 9 says, And by that scripture, uh, uh, scripture does not assume God has amnesia, that he's going to forget something about the past, uh, but that he will not hold our sin against us, that he'll pardon us. And later on in the prayer, he'll specifically teach us to say that, right? Forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts. We do not presume upon his grace, but we come in humble reliance upon him to provide it. Okay, so in addition to reverence, we also come with holy affections. And these, uh, this means that we ought to pray with a mind that is set on things above. Our union with Christ in his resurrection means that we seek things from him who is seated at the right hand of God. It, you can imagine that when you're praying. Imagine that you're, you're praying to your creator, Who is seated on the throne? Not that you can see what he looks like or have this idea of what you know. You don't need to. Certainly, don't put a trinket in front of you to kind of represent him. It's idolatry. But but you can have this recognition that you are praying to a God who is seated on the throne, whose glory is emanating, and at all times, and all those surrounding the throne are worshiping him, as we see the imagery in Revelation. So our union with Christ in his resurrection means that we seek things from him who is seated at the right hand of God. We set our minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things. That comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Again, that doesn't mean that we only care about spiritual realities. We ignore all physical pain or tra- trials or challenges. We only think about spiritual things. Um, we can and should pray about physical trials, but we should never divorce them from spiritual realities. We consider our physical circumstances in light of our spiritual position. So this is an important perspective that keeps our affections properly aimed toward eternity, even as we're praying for tomorrow, even as we're praying for the next meeting we're about to have or something like that, the challenges that we face that same day. We can have in, in mind, we can keep eternity in mind as we come before the Father in prayer with those right heavenly affections. We also want to recognize that we are praying to one who is enthroned in the heavens, as Psalm 123 verse 1 says. He is sovereign over all. He is seated on the throne. And he's glorious, but he's also in control. So of course you want to bring everything on your mind before him. I want to ask him because he is capable of hearing and answering. He alone can show us the mercy that we need. He alone can grant the wisdom we desire. So intimacy with God as our father should not be confused with irreverence. Jesus is not our homeboy. We don't belittle his sovereignty by calling him dude in prayer. And maybe some of you have heard that. I've I've read about someone, I was reading a book, Last week, and the pastor was proudly talking about how he had such intimacy in prayer that he could just refer to him as dude. And um, I, I think that's dangerous. That, that's to ignore the reverence uh, that his position demands us to come before him as. He's the king, and so we come humbly. He's seated on his throne. And while that should not scare us from coming, does that mean we stay away from him because we're too afraid or ashamed of being in his presence, uh, but we, we should not make light of who he is. So when we pray, we want to consider ourselves to be in the posture of appealing to God in heaven. And Lamentations chapter 3, verse 41 says, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. The idea of lifting up our hearts and our hands implies that we are bringing our affections before God with the willingness to be used by Him. We're bringing all of our emotional being before Him, offering that to Him, and then also saying, here's my hands, use them, do what you will. We want to be in that posture when we come before God in prayer. And so we offer our hearts and our hands to be used for his kingdom purposes every time we pray to him. Uh, We also keep several things in mind about the character of God, and, and that's where the answer says, having due apprehensions of his sovereign power, majesty, and gracious condescension. Of course, this is simply a summary. You could add multiple commas to this sentence and add many more attributes of God that we could have in mind. But the idea here is that we would apprehend both his sovereignty and his grace, both his power and his mercy. He's not simply a father. He is our heavenly father, seated on his throne. He, we, we ask him to graciously consider our situation. And so it's perfectly within his power to ignore us. He doesn't have to listen to us, but he does not, that doesn't fit his character. That doesn't fit the way he's revealed himself to us. That as we cry out to him, we have the spirit of adoption. We we cry out as sons. And so just because he graciously condescends to meet with us, we do want to keep in mind his sovereign power and majesty. Again, this, this answer is continually balancing back and forth here, balancing these attitudes, right? We We come recognizing His gracious uh, posture towards us without ignoring His sovereign power and His majesty. We can acknowledge that our sin deserves whatever punishment God sees fit to give, but we pray for Him to show mercy and to have compassion as our Father and our Redeemer. These are the paradoxes of Christianity, we do not get what we deserve, and this should constantly fill our thoughts as we cry out to him in prayer, he asks us to pray for that which we do not deserve. Once again, it reminds us that we are praying through his son, you know, in the name of his son, in the power of his spirit. And so let us learn from Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah? You can Let's turn to that passage of Scripture, Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses uh, 4 through 6. You have this example of of one who, who wept and fasted for days in prayer when he heard about the devastation of Jerusalem. So listen to, let's, let's read the first six verses of Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the sons of Hakaliah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with, children, uh, with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there. In the province, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days And my father's house have sinned. So notice there, he he hears about the devastation of Jerusalem. He hears about the remnant that is left there in turmoil and despair. And he himself is moved to tears, to mourning, and to fasting for days. Even when our situation looks bleak and we are filled with despair, we can bring our tears to God. We can remind him of his covenant and steadfast love. Notice that's how he begins there. How often do we begin our prayers with the situation we're in? Or we start with, Lord, how can I be right here in this place right now? And where Nehemiah begins is even through his tears, he says, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, even though their situation would call that into question, He proclaims it to God in prayer. You are keeping covenant and steadfast love with us. So just because our situation has changed does not mean that God has changed. We should consider his attributes. We should give him the proper adoration and praise that he is due every time we go before him. His posture towards us is still that of a father who is able to hear our prayers and ready to answer them. According to His perfect will, and when we honor God's sovereignty and grace, we do not weaken our responsibility in prayer. Right, we do not think that God's sovereignty eliminates our responsibility. We do not think that God's uh, that that because He is in control, uh, we can do nothing. All right? We don't minimize our role by admitting that God will accomplish accomplish his will, with or without us. God's will involves the prayers of his people. And Nehemiah is a great example of that. He prayed day and night on behalf of Israel. He understood the dire situation the nation was in, and he didn't rest until God answered. He confessed the sins of the nation, including those he himself and his family had committed. And then in repentance, he asks God to return to them and to show compassion. So prayer is, is one of the means in which we communicate our repentance to God. Uh, repentance isn't just a feeling. It's not just an emotion, right? It's, it's expressing um, how we've offended God. It's recognizing our sin for what it truly is but also at the same time apprehending God's posture towards us, his mercy and his grace towards us, so that we know that when we confess, we will hear his assurance of pardon. And so prayer is one of the means that we communicate our repentance to God. And, um, and we do that, right? We do that in a very brief manner Sunday mornings, right, before we take the Lord's Supper. We take just a moment, and it's not enough, if ever, if ever you feel like, um, man, I've, this is a long time here that we're getting to, to pray our, our sins. I don't have that many things to say. Well, then, then you're probably not in the right posture at that moment because it's, it's not meant to be, uh, to give you an adequate amount of time. It's, it's an, a reminder though, right? That, that every day we're to be coming before him, confessing our sin. Uh, both specifically, and in this corporate manner, as Nehemiah does here, notice his his prayer when he when he asks, he confesses the sins. It just he says, um, he came or sorry, I I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. That's a very generic confession, confessing their sins. God knows those sins, and and he know, Nehemiah knows precisely what sins are on his mind. So you can. Confess those sins in that generic fashion, but you can also confess your own personal sins very specifically, and you should do so. Right? You should be mindful of the ways in which you have fallen short, the ways in which you have offended God and others, and confess those sins freely to Him. So let us not grow negligent in pursuing our Father, even when we have offended Him, All right? God is seated high above all nations and his glory is above the heavens. He looks down upon his creation and he hears our prayers. And so we should pursue him in that way, confessing our sins, giving him praise, bringing our petitions before him. Finally, the answer concludes with this statement, as also to pray with and for others. Remember, this is all just by way of description. Defining what it means to pray our Father in heaven. Where do we get this idea to pray with and for others from? It's that first person plural pronoun, are. When we say are, we mean something by that. We mean that we're not alone. We do not consider ourselves to be God's only child. We belong to a family of innumerable children. And so when Peter was kept in prison, the church gathered together and prayed earnestly for him. They prayed corporately. Acts 12, verse 5. They did not do this because they thought God was unaware of the situation Peter was in. They did this because we have seen uh, many examples of the power of prayer in the Old Testament. They They knew that God answered prayer, the prayers of his people. It's one of the means of grace that he provides us. And so their gathering together in united prayer was one of the purposes of God in allowing Peter to be imprisoned. I think we can confidently say that. That one of the reasons Peter was in prison at that moment was to build unity within the church as they gathered in prayer on his behalf. And so Peter draws us closer, or prayer draws us closer as a community. We witnessed this um, in, in our previous church at Sierra View uh, when the pastor's wife, Anna Peterson, became, um, uh, was in a, a really a life and death situation after she delivered her seventh child. Um, uh, she, her, her blood was not clotting and she was beginning to bleed out and um, we were in Mississippi still but, um, at least, at least some of you would remember that, um, that time in, in the church at Sierra View and, and just the, 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 I guess the, the sense of despair that brought people together, but the prayers that were offered during that time that, that really unified the church were tremendous, um we drove back from from Mississippi to to be here with them we honestly thought we were coming back to a funeral we thought by the time we got here she would be dead uh, but we were praying the whole way we were in a kind of a posture of constant prayer and um and then when we got here we continued to pray with that with the church and, and we saw god uh bring healing to her and it's not quite complete healing, but she's doing really well now. We see her every year at General Assembly. Um, But that is an example. Why did she go through that? Why why would they go through that as a family? Um, I, I think at least one of the reasons God had was to build the unity of the church through that trial. And it wasn't just for Sierra View. Because so many, I've talked to so many pastors who say, oh, you're in that area where that pastor's wife almost died several years ago, right? If I say Fresno, that's what people think about in the PCA. Because every church in the PCA, it seems, heard about her situation and was praying for her. And as a denomination, it brought us together to see God bring healing. So again, there are many reasons God allows things to happen, but I believe One of the more obvious reasons is that we would begin to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens, because it knits us together in unity. Right as a community uh, um, lifts up the needs of of all people, um, we lift up the needs of of people from all stations of life. We we pray for those with political power to maintain peace. We pray at all times with the help of the Spirit, making supplication for all the saints. so we pray for those within the church. We pray for those outside of the church. We should pray in our closet when no one is paying attention, unlike the Pharisee who only prays to be seen by others. But that doesn't mean that we should neglect praying with others. We ought to look forward to praying with and for others. God often uses the prayers of others to guide us and to embolden us for the task he's calling us to. When we pray for others, we ought to pray with a willingness to be used by God in answer to our prayers. Just as we were talking about earlier, the idea that we offer our heart and our hands, right, when we pray. We bring our affections to God, and we also bring our hands willing to be used by Him. So the brief phrase, our Father in heaven, is packed with great significance. We have been adopted into a gigantic family because of the sacrifice of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And like him, we want to come before our Father with confidence and reverence as we confess our sins and lift up our hearts and hands to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come before you now with reverence and with confidence, knowing that you hear our prayers. We pray that we would learn how to pray for one another more. That as we bear one another's burdens, we would grow closer together, that our unity would be felt more and more. We thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you for the example of prayer that we have in the Lord's Prayer and for the numerous examples of prayers throughout the Old and New Testament that we can look to 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 give us understanding. Lord, as we ask questions, as we dialogue around the table, uh, may we have that mindset that we are finding ways in which to build one another up and and to bear their burdens, to lift them up before you in prayer. Help us to do that even now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is Behold Our God.
1: Nothing
0: And now, the Lord's benediction. May your prayers be counted as incense. The lifting up of your praise is the evening offering, always giving thanks for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Amen.
1: Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. be seated.
0: Your favorite time of Q&A has finally come.